Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading the books of our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien. Ian, where in this Aubrey Matron canon did we leave off and where are we headed today? Let's take a look, Mike. This is going to be great. The last time in the first chapter of The Hundred Days, the squadron commanded by uh, acting Commodore Aubrey had arrived in Gibraltar. We learned, series of hammer blows here, that Diana, Mrs. Williams, Admiral Lord Stranra, and Governor Wood of Sierra Leone are all dead. Lord Keith had told Jack to divide his squadron, to block the Strait of Gibraltar, to protect British trade through the Mediterranean, and also to rid the Adriatic of warships being built for Napoleon's navy. And meanwhile, the grieving Stephen Maturin has a mission. With Dr. Jacob's help, he's going to help stop a Muslim scheme that is intended to block Wellington's allies from joining him in time. So, Mike, this time, Jack's going to be exercising the squadron's great guns. Stephen's composing some music, and we get to dig into what that could be. He gets a new loblolly boy, well, kind of boy. He sketches this severed hand. And as we go through the chapter today, there's a mention of bad omens. There's darkness lurking in the background, danger threatening, and the squadron is called to action. Mike, all of this, and it's only chapter two. Wow. Isn't it the truth? And, and, you know, we start kind of, I, I don't know, especially with that introduction, I'm like, okay, let's go. And Jack's feeling exactly that way. You know, he can't wait to leave to get out there to get on these missions. But, you know, the squadron's stuck in Gibraltar waiting to be reorganized. We know last chapter there was the big court martial over on Pomone, and the Pomone really needs a lot of help. There on that ship, you know, they've got a, a relatively new crew. It had questionable discipline to begin with, and it's really now suffering. You know, they're getting harassments from all the other ship's crews because of this sodomy trial with one of their officers. That officer was dismissed the service, towed ashore on a grating in front of all these spectators. So, you know, everybody on the ship is kind of feeling a little bit of that shame. There's a new captain, a new second lieutenant, who neither of these captain or the second lieutenant know any of the crew. And Jack invites this new captain, Captain Pomfrey, and the gunner from the Pomone to accompany the surprise out into the strait to exercise the great guns. And right, th- th- this is more home territory, it seems so far, for Jack Aubrey. If in doubt, help a shipmate out or a squadron mate by getting him to think harder about gunnery. Not only do we have this awkward situation and this change of leadership aboard the Pomone, we also discover that the midshipmen and many of the rest of the crew don't have very much gunnery experience. So Jack is the leader who's going to help them out here. Many of them, it turns out, are actually injured by the recoil of the first broadside that the Pomone fires off. They get the added ignominy of watching the surprise utterly destroying these targets that have been left unscathed by the Pomone, destroying them with the famous three broadsides in five minutes and 10 seconds. Jack is offering a guiding hand, I think, rather than heaping any kind of shade on the crew of the Pomone here. Um, He advises Captain Pomfret to get on and implement the kind of great gun exercises that Aubrey himself is a big fan of. Pomfret doesn't need very much convincing here. He agrees, and he points out the mitigating factors that he's very shorthanded and the crew has not been together long. Well, maybe there's something we can do to beef up the crew, says Jack. Why don't you take your pinnace and launch and hang around off Cape Spartel until dawn? And there you can press hands out of merchant ships 
who haven't yet heard the news that Napoleon has broken out. His other advice is to go ahead and keep the hands very busy. Don't blackguard them. Don't you know insult them and heap shame on them. Praise them wherever you can. This is back to leadership 101 a la Jack Aubrey here. If, if you can praise them, he says, you will find it answer wonderfully. And then he says, after a week of this, when people know their pieces, you can start firing live. Nothing, he says, pleases them more once they're used to the din. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's really, like you said, in spending that quality time with the Pomone, the Pomone's new captain doing that. And then he he goes one by one all around the, each ship in the squadron. And, and for the others who have a lot more experience, their crews are pretty much together. He's, you know, usually just requiring them to beat to quarters. And when yeah. they do that, you know, he's got the experience to be able to watch them and assess their gun crews, their midshipmen. Now, the Dover still, you know, kind of converting itself from troop ship to fighting ship was not discreditable. And he thinks the others will do in a push. And the little Breesis, uh, one of that numerous class called coffin brigs for their tendency to turn over and sink, was positively brilliant, writes O'Brien. Yeah. So, boy, there's a, uh, you know, there's there's kind of a contradiction here. <laughs> Jack tells her captain, you know, he says, you know, it, it was positively brilliant. And he says it so that everybody in earshot can hear him. So, like you said, Jack doing an absolute masterclass in management here and leadership here. And I love how he, you know, kind of mentoring his own, that very Jack Albrey style of leadership yeah. around the squadron. So Jack's Commodore duties requires him to keep paperwork on all the ship and all their officers and all their conditions. And these reports and his assessments and his kind of trying to make the decision about who should be on what mission is resulting in this paperwork just overflowing his desk. So he he has his joiner, you know, run up two tray-like wings added to the side so he can keep everything within arm's reach. And he's, you know, I think perhaps a little bit unusual for Jack. Everything is completely organized. He's really taking this seriously. And he walks back in from, you know, having worked with this last ship, and he sees that what he calls some criminal hand has merged many of his precise stacks into an unmeaning heap and spread several manuscript sheets of music. And he references a score of a pavan in C minor that it looks like is in progress laid out across his desk. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. I, ca I can't see many of the ship's crew, you know, writing music in Jack's office. So I, I think I know where this is going. But I'm thinking a score of a pavan in C minor. Ian, surely this has got to mean something. Well, it, it's fascinating. A pavan is a stately dance dating back to the renaissance times really uh it has a sort of slow quick quick slow quick quick sort of pace to it and it didn't mean anything particularly it's a dance form it's a sort of catch your breath slow elegant form of dance in between all the other kind of more lively dances but the pavan has been written from the sort of early romantic period onwards it's become something that's much more melancholy um, I'll, I'll drop a few of these into the music playlist on our YouTube channel. Um, most people know the tune, even if they don't know the name of Gabriel Fauré's tune, Pavan for a Dead Child, Pavan pour un enfant défunt. There's a very famous sort of neo-Renaissance suite written in the 20th century by a guy called Peter Warlock. The suite's called the Capriol Suite, and the central slow movement there is this Pavan, very stately, 
in the very, very dark minor key. It's very, very sad. You might even say, if you want to go back to roughly the time that Stephen and Jack are occupying, the slow movement of Beethoven 7. Again, very, very famous tune. It's got this pa, 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 pa rhythm. So all of these things have taken the rhythm of the Pavana and made it into something that's quite melancholy. Mm. And as as nobody is surprised to learn here, the hand that's been creating this Pavan has been Stephen Maturin. And uh, it's not a big stretch of the imagination to see how Stephen might have picked up on the Pavan form as a vehicle for writing something from the place where he is right now, which is mm. um, bereavement. Stephen himself then walks in and begs Jack's pardon and says that he has a thought, something he wanted to write down quickly and hopes that he hadn't disturbed anything. And Jack begins to explain where this new loblolly boy, boy in air quotes, you know, podcasts are a great way to use air quotes, right? As I'm waving my hands right, in the air right now. <laughs> Jack explains that the squadron had received a draft of hands out of a ship called the Leviathan. And Maggie Cheel and Paul Skeeping have come aboard. Now, these are two women. Paul, we learn, had trained at Hasler at the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth and can handle anything that comes along in the way of blood and horrors. And Stephen, picking up on the names of Paul and Maggie, says, You're speaking of women, brother. You who have always abominated so much as the smell of a skirt aboard ship, the invariable cause of trouble, quarrelling, ill luck, wholly out of place in any ship, above all in a man of war. I have never seen a woman aboard a man of war. And I like this partly because Stephen clearly contradicting everybody's recent experience, including having a whole passage with Clarissa Oaks on board, but never mind. Um, he's just joining in the conversation and being contrary here. And Jack says, well, on the contrary, the sailmaker's wife had helped serve the number eight gun and had been passing shot as recently as their time aboard the Bellona. And uh, this is a nice moment for Jack to occupy the tell it how it is role and giving us some exposition about the history of women aboard men of war yeah jack explains that there are women aboard men of war sometimes you know and, and much more often than i think i would have ever imagined mm. he says they're usually middle-aged or older uh, often the wife or the widow of a warrant or petty officer some started by, he says, by running away, wearing trousers to be with their man. So some came aboard disguised as a man. Um, and by the time they were discovered, they were kind of indistinguishable from seamen. <laughs> they spoke yeah. the language. <laughs> they were actually, you know, they were able seamen. So you know, they thought, well, what the heck? Let's keep going. And, you know, he says that the reason Stephen hasn't seen them is he wouldn't have unless they were injured because they really don't show up much. They kind of they're indistinguishable, kind of hiding in plain sight or out of sight uh, that the only time they show up is church. And we know Stephen doesn't go to church. Stephen is, you know, kind of other piece of the ship with uh, with the Catholic service there. So Stephen says a loblolly girl for all love. I wonder at it, Jack. And Jack points out that, you know, Stevens had loblolly boys who were ancients of 60, even more. My God, can you imagine somebody that? Oh, yeah, I can. <laughs> ancients of 60 or more. Jack says, Paul is cheerful, conscientious, and unlikely to stir the amorous propensities of the sick birth. She's <laughs> used to semen, and she would instantly put them down so she can handle the shipmates there. Yep. And Jack says that, you know, he was a shipmate with her once. And now I, I think, you know, we can hear what Stephen's agent's ear was hearing. Oh, okay. So it's a bit, it's not, yeah, yeah. 
because yeah, we we completely reversed our positions on women on ships, Jack versus Stephen. You know, we're now completely <laughs> fighting from the opposite side. So he was shipmates, and he can answer the text says for her being kind, no blackguarding, no bawling out orders, not topping at the ship's corporal. Indeed, kind, honest, sober, and very tender with the wounded. Mm. And he asked Stephen if he will at least have a word with her. And I'm I'm reading this, Ian, it's kind of like, you know, Stephen, you know, I've, I've kind of told her, you talk to her and save my face here. At least, you know, if you're going to dismiss her, speak to her first here. And I love this. You know, Stephen says, of course I will see her brother. A kind, honest, and sober nurse is a rare and valuable creature, God knows. And Jack sends the word for Paul. So... It's great that we're going to meet Paul, and I want to do a quick uh, shout out here, a quick salute uh, to a lady called Jane, who may or may not be listening, um, who is a member of the very venerable, which is code for old, the very venerable gunroom mailing list serve. And Jane goes by the pseudonym of Paul Skeeping there. So I've been waiting for a while for Paul Skeeping's alter ego to show up here. So it's great to make the connection. And hello, Jane, if you're listening. Absolutely. So the fictional Paul Skeeping appears right away clean apron and hat, comes in, makes her bob to the offices, holding her character to her bosom. And, and Mike, this is a funny thing. We've, we've had this before. I think people talking about their characters and O'Brien's never quite explained what they mean by their characters. Uh, she's not talking about holding her, her personality, her reputation, you know, in, in a crystal ball. She's actually talking about her a reference, what you might call a testimonial. Um, what she refers to as her character is a, a, a written testimonial from her wherever she last worked. And uh, O'Brien, for once, explains this for us in a bit of exposition. Jack introduces Paul to Stephen, and they all sit down. She's sitting, as it says here in the text, bolt upright, the envelope of her character held like a shield. There you go. <laughs> so Stephen tells her about the position and all the nice things that Jack has said about her. Um, asks her about her experience and professional qualifications, goes so far as to ask whether she's got any experience of amputation, lithotomy, or the use of the trephine. And Mike, I'm not sure whether many of Stephen's previous lob lolly boys, having been by and large, you know, horse doctors, <laughs> might ever have done any trepanning, but, you know, he's, he's asking. Um, and she says she's been in the Navy for 20 years. When she was young, she and her brothers used to play surgeon at their father's shop, which was a butcher and a horse knacker jointing house, which means she's seen quite a lot of the gory stuff. And at Haslar, which is the Royal Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, she had gone right on into serving in the surgical theatre, so she's not squeamish. She asks him to read her character, and Mike, I'm guessing that she might not be literate, and that she's oh, handing point. this over because she doesn't want to read it aloud because she doesn't know what it says. She trusts right. that it says something good but I'm guessing that she might not be literate. So she describes that the surgeon of her last ship, the author of this uh, testimonial, was a very learned gentleman. Stephen breaks the seal, reads this testimonial. Not only is it written and therefore unintelligible to her, it's written in Latin <laughs> as one physician to another. And as she hoped and as we all believed, it's a testimonial describing her worth, her capabilities, and her exceptional sobriety. And I'm just going to say one more time to, to Jane, also known as Paul Skipping of the Gun Room. I'm, uh, I, I'm sure that you two are capable and kind and sober, but we'll never know. 
This had been written, interestingly, by another Irish surgeon, a friend of Stephen's from his student days, who, just like Stephen, uh, was, was an opponent of Napoleon Bonaparte. And as the text says, saw Napoleonic tyranny as a far greater and more immediate evil than the English government of Ireland. Definitely a kindred soul to Stephen. So yeah. I, I think he's, he's taking this doubly, uh, you know, she's got a lot of, of heavy duty weight behind her. Yeah. Well, Stephen says anyone so highly spoken of by Mr. Tidan will answer for him. He offers to show her the sick birth himself, saying that the assistant surgeon will be coming aboard this afternoon. And after the tour, he mentions that they're, you know, they're painfully short of blue ointment and asks if she knows how to make it. Oh, she says it's many a times that she's made it. And they stand there and grind some together and, and work. So I think this is Stephen kind of the, you know, I'm, 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 I love you. Now let's kind of see you in action. But, uh, and, and we'll have a little chance to talk a little bit more. So beautifully there. And uh, as they work, Stephen tells her that he's seen very few women on ships during his time at sea and wonders why they would, as the text says, stay at a place so often damp and always so bare of comfort. So I think this is this is a great opening here. Tell me, tell me more about why you're here, you know, and why women would be here. She says that many of the warrant officers take their wives along, and the wives often like to take a friend along. Mm-hmm. And her particular friend, Maggie Cheel, is the bosun's wife's sister. So, you know, it's it's kind of like, okay, we're all kind of a little family coming here. And I, I couldn't help but notice her use of the phrase particular friend that I thought, this is Jack and Stephen too. So kind of a neat thing here. Um, she says that some of the women are given pa- you know, permission to take passage by the captain or the first lieutenant. And in hard times, she says, some come aboard dressed like men, you know, just as Jack had said. Now, she says it's not very comfortable, except in a first or second rate that does not wear a flag. But there is good company and you are sure of food. And then the text says the men upon the whole are kinder than women. You get used to it all, and the order and regularity is a comfort in itself. So I thought, wow, this was this is a really interesting. You know, you know, it's not very often. Uh, you know, un, un, unlike Jane Austen, who never <laughs> says what what men say. Here we go. We're inside the the mind of a woman a little bit, and what Paul is thinking here. Yeah. Well, she was sent to Hassler, so she's giving Stephen. You know, kind of here's my history to look after a post captain who'd lost a foot and needed a delicate dressing. So when he returned, they said, you know, you go along and, you know, you help him until he's healed. Well, you know, after he healed, she was looking after the little ones on his 74 and then went on to look after youngsters helping, you know, the gunner's wife. She traveled with relations in other ships. She spent time in naval hospitals. And now she hopes to be Loblolly boy in the surprise, she says, I, I hope, sir, I- if I give satisfaction. So, you know, th- she realizes the interview isn't over yet. And, and you know, Stephen says, well, she has the job, particularly since, you know, her former surgeon said in her character that she does not play the physician, puzzle the patients with long words or criticize the doctor's orders. So I think Stephen's mm-hmm. saying, yeah, yeah, these are these are my ground rules as well. She thanks him, starts to leave, and then stops at the door, turns around. She's kind of blushing, and she asks him to call her Paul, just like 
the captain and Killick and the others that she served with rather than Mrs. Skeeping. She doesn't want anyone to think she's topping at the knob. I thought, oh. wow, here we go. Well done. Well done. Welcome aboard. Yes. Well, we've got some other people coming aboard as well, but this time they're mostly familiar to us. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, Stephen's friend, who we were getting back in touch with in the previous chapter, comes aboard. And Stephen is really pleased with how warmly he's welcomed into the gunroom by Harding and Summers and Hewell. And Summers and Hewell are certainly characters that we've, uh, we'll remember from previous books. The master Woodbine joins them, although he's late because there'd been a sudden gust of wind that caused somebody to get lost overboard. He has a good conversation with Jacobs about natural curiosities that he's seen in the, all his years at sea. And as they're having this kind of nice conversation of reminiscence and of, thereby avoiding shop talk, there's another curious blast that comes and rocks the surprise. The master, who is a Sethian, as many of the surprises are, um, says that he's known these kind of gusts in this particular patch of water for tell a seven-day blow out of the northeast many times before. And Mike, I, I've known secondary characters foretell doom and disaster from bad weather in the opening chapters of Patrick O'Brien novels many times before. <laughs> and I think they're just as, just as reliable a harbinger as, <laughs> as the gusts themselves. Right. Now, Summers facetiously says, well, in that case... God help the poor fellows in Pomone's boats. And we remember the boats are out uh, out at sea there waiting to press sailors from passing merchantmen. And the master shakes his head and says, did you ever know a bad omen to be wrong, Mr. Summers? Yeah, right. Bad omens in the beginning of Patrick O'Brien novels have very rarely been wrong, unless they've been a complete red herring. And we know that. Patrick O'Brien's being crafty and introducing a couple of different kinds of jeopardy here. Yeah, the winds continued day after day. And Jack and his secretary, David Adams, keep rearranging the forces at hand. So they keep sort of saying, well, you know, what if we sent this ship and that ship? And, you know, we get all these drafts of people. Who should we just, you know, assign to which ships, depending on which missions they're going on? And Jack exercises the squadron repeatedly on great guns. He dines with his captains regularly. Now, he really likes the young Pottenfried that's in acting command of the Pomone. He likes Harris of the Breesis, both excellent seamen who realize the importance of rapid, accurate fire. One of Jack's, you know, this is it. Got to have this. The captains of Rainbow and Ganymede are agreeable young men, but they kind of, because they're young, they're lacking in authority. And they've been unfortunate with the officers they've been assigned to. Uh, They do have good quality ships, but sadly, the ships are not in first rate order. Now, the big exception seems to be Captain Ward of the Dover, who's described as heavy, graceless, domineering and inefficient, said to be rich, certainly mean and generally disliked. And so, you know, and, and. you know, I think the text tells us, you know, this is very unusual in a, in a captain here. And, yeah. you know, because people don't like him, he doesn't like them. So when he hosts a dinner, he really skimps on it and everybody hates them. They're bad and unpleasant. So, yeah, we've got one bad apple. I'm, I'm thinking back to the Mauritius command going, oh, God, there's uh, you know, at least there's only one bad apple so far. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, he's filling in a template of a dislikable O'Brien character. Uh, I think he's even dark-haired. I'm sure we've had that somewhere. Uh, he's wealthy. He's graceless. It, it could only be worse, Mike, if he played the German flute. Right. That's right. So 
Stephen and Jacob, while they're still all in the vicinity of Gibraltar, are going ashore to visit the hospital every day. And Paul's with them. She watched Stephen perform two of his signature procedures, the suprapubic cystotomy, um, in front of the physician of the fleet. So this is obviously being held up as a really high example of practice. And in private, she gets a conversation going with Jacob and says, that was the neatest, quickest job she had ever seen. Should never have believed it could have been done so quick and with scarcely a groan, I shall light a candle for each of them against the infection. And my, I, I kind of wonder whether Paul might be a Catholic and whether that might be another reason that she's uh, kind of building a close rapport here with Stephen Maturin. And, and lighting a candle for a patient is not completely unheard of for your Anglicans, but it has a, has a strong whiff of Rome about it. Right, right. Jack and Stephen, meanwhile, are going to turn back to this pavan that Stephen's just composed. And Jack gets straight to the heart of it. He says, it is terribly sad. And then right away, these are words that he wished unsaid with all his heart. And Stephen's reply is even more heartbreaking. Do you know any happy music? Asks Stephen. I do not. Wow. And Mike, there's a, a very profound statement about Stephen and the place that his character's in right now. I think it's a very profound statement about music and any kind of great art. You know, it's it's a it's a mirror to what we bring to it. Um, another piece that I might put in the playlist on YouTube is by a guy called Arvo Pert, a late twentieth century composer. I wrote a piece called Spiegel im Spiegel uh, for either piano and violin or piano and cello, and it's a very pure, almost cold very kind of formulaic, repetitive structure. It's very, very beautiful. And Spiegel im Spiegel means mirror within a mirror. And it's one of those pieces that if you're, uh, you know, in a, in a positive frame of mind, it's the most reassuring and joyful and just kind of de delightful piece of music. Uh, and if you're not, it's the most, um, the most heartbreaking <laughs> and mm. uh, emotion, emotional thing you could ever listen to. Wow. And I think it's a good example of the way that, you bring to your experience of art, whatever's going on in your life. And that's Stephen's experience. He's found his outlet for it in writing the Pavan, but he's also telling us that if he were to write a jig or a minuet, then I think it would still sound like uh, a lament to him. Right, right. Now, we've got two chapters and a month or more of real time have, have gone by since Diana passed away. We know that Stephen was, to, to say it very mildly, rattled, and we've seen that from his behavior so far. We've heard it secondhand from Jack describing to Queenie and to Lord Keith how Stephen was doing, but we haven't really had any account of Stephen's thoughts. And I'm, I'm sure since O'Brien is using Stephen as his kind of avatar in these books, it would be a thing that he'd approach very indirectly, if at all, since he's talking about his own feelings about the loss of Mary. Um, but... As, as a friend of Stephen and therefore sort of vicariously a secondhand a friend of Patrick O'Brien's, I'm thinking, come on, you know, we, we need to talk to you about this and I'd like to hear how you're doing and I'd like you to, to find a way to express this. But I'm sure it's just, you know, overwhelmingly personal for O'Brien, the author at this point. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the scene is, is kind of set that way with Jack and Stephen sitting there, you know, Jack thinking, oh God, I, I, why did I say it's so sad? You know what? Yeah. And, and O'Brien tells us that embarrassment hangs in the air 
So I think this is O'Brien saying, yeah, we don't talk about these things, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and until they hear a measured series of small explosions. And the master's mate, Salmon, runs in reporting the ringle has come in. The noise is her saluting the flag. And and Jack is divided. You know, he's furious that the schooner has come in and, and the surprises lookouts never reported her. And he's overjoyed that she's arrived. Now, he sees that Salmon is, is soaked. So he grabs a boat cloak and he runs up on deck. And then he realizes, well, there's virtually no visibility with the weather. So and that the Ringle is wearing, you know, virtually no sail that she, you know, came straight through the moles, you know, didn't have to fly anything to get through there. So he's like, okay, I get it. Why? Why we didn't see her. And Reed is already halfway up the side. And, you know, and O'Brien tells us he's extraordinarily nimble with his hook. So I'm glad to see William Reed back. Here's another friend of Stephen, another friend of ours. And, you know, an interesting progression in the chapter. Yeah. And two things that were all, that were forever true, right? It's forever true that lookouts don't actually do that great of a job. We've known that since Master and Commander. Second thing that we've always known about the Ringle is it's capable of record-breaking speed in almost any circumstances. <laughs> right, that's right. And, 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 and Jack says, what's on our mind? I, I can't believe you just got here. Yeah, we can't believe it either. Um, I hadn't expected you for another week, he says. And Reed says, well, we had this splendid run. We had the breeze just so, keeping us at high speed all the way. And he says, before he tells Jack that all's well at home and passing on all of his love from all hands, meaning all hands um, with the with the Aubrey family, he has to report that he saw the Pomone's boats being attacked by small craft. So it wasn't the billows and the storms that have got to these Pomoners out there in the straits looking for men to press. It's some kind of enemy. Now, we think that they are Moors, and Reed, he says, had dealt with the Moors and offered to tow the boats along, but Pomone's first lieutenant asked him instead to race ahead and pass on the message. Immediately report to the flag, he asks, that about half a dozen Sally rovers, that's North African pirates, are waiting for the East India men lying to just down the coast. And Mike, pirates, East India Squadron, there's not a moment to lose. We're, we're in classic Jack Aubrey mode here. We, we really are. And Jack, Jack gives the signal for the squadron to run more, you know, get ready to sail. And he, you know, jumps in his boat, heads across to the admirals. And he tells the captain of the fleet, the captain of the fleet says, look, you got to go straight in to see the admiral. Jack briefs Lord Keith. And Lord Keith, I love this, another example of great leadership, says, well, what do you propose and, you know, Jack says, the text reads, my Lord, I propose leading the squadron out directly, making for La Riche. If the Corsairs are still there, I shall just make a show of force and stand on until I find the Indiamen, presumably still lying under the sugar loaf. If I find them engaged, clearly I disengage them. If not, I escort them westward and as near north as they can lie, leaving Dover to see them home. Make it so, Captain Aubrey. Mm. Wish I could do it in Scottish, but I can't. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Jack is taking the squadron out into the Atlantic, down the coast of the Morocco. And, you know, at, at this, if 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 we have action ahead, boy, that's pretty early for an O'Brien book of late. So I'm, I can't wait to hear what happens. It is. I, I, I don't quite know what to make of it myself, um, especially make it so. If you're inclined to go and uh, dip into one of your old Star Trek episodes, now might be a good time. Let's just take a pause here, catch our breath, and we'll see what's giving with these Sally Rovers when we come back after this short break. 
if you're enjoying the podcast and if you're listening to the show before september 5th 2023 would you consider helping us out and heading over to the british podcast awards website and casting a vote in the listeners choice category go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and let's see where we get to Welcome back, everybody. We hope you had a good break. Um, if you, like us, are sometimes intrigued by the connections between Star Trek and the O'Brien canon, don't forget that you can check out the podcast of our good friend Steve Morris, Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. If you search Enterprise Incidents, Scott and Steve, you'll find them online wherever you normally get your podcasts. Anyhow, b- back in our own universe and back in the uh, Aubrey Matron timeline, We've got trouble brewing, I think, with these Sally Rovers and the boats from the Pomone and the Ringle having come flying in to bring this news. The visibility is limited. So Jack gives his orders verbally to the other ships in the squadron, changes from signals to lights and guns, and is very pleased to notice how smoothly and professionally the Surprise and her crew respond. Maybe you might think in in contrast to what might be going on in some of the other ships in the squadron. He even thinks that they might be a little nonchalant preparing everything for action and moving out into the open sea. The rest of the squadron follows along, the Dover sustaining a bit of damage, grazing the mole stonework there in Gibraltar. And in due course, the weather clears and we have excellent pure sailing at night under the moon. Now, we remember from the previous chapter from the previous episode that Stephen has uh, has been given this uh, this hand, this kind of encrusted and clenched hand from a cadaver by Jacobs. And in the cabin, Jack is no doubt delighted to find that Stephen is carefully making an exact drawing of what O'Brien calls the dark purple of that terrible hand. And right now he's focusing on a particular tendon. And Jack expresses how impressed he is that Stephen can do this despite the motion of the ship. What a sea dog you are become, said Jack. I flatter myself that a whole pack of sea dogs could not have improved upon the forward starboard aspect of this aponeurosis, said Stephen. I do it by pressing the underneath of the table with my knees and the top of it with my elbows so that we all, paper, object, table and draftsman, move together with very little discontinuity. One substance, as it were. And I think that this is a really nice moment. Jack reaching out just a little bit, as he so often does to his friend with a little compliment and a little bit of engagement. And yeah, I, I think it's helping out so far. Stephen decides to take a break from, you know, holding this table down with his knees here. And the two of them get up and, and they return to their stack of letters that William Reed had brought them from home. Um, Reed had hurried the writers. So, you know, he wanted to get out of there. So it's like, you got to write quick letters. And, uh, you know, we hear that Clarissa Oaks wrote the least flustered one telling about the household, you know, pretty much returning to a more normal existence. The kids continuing their education. Uh, O'Brien tells us that Sophie's two hurried letters are, are tear-blotted pages that do, in his words, that do her heart more credit than her head. Yeah. Sophie says that Mrs. Oaks and the neighbors near and far have been a real comfort to her after the loss of her mother. And she also refers in, in just a fleeting comment at the end of one of these letters to the window tax. Ian, the window tax, does that sound familiar to you? I, I just ran across this in my Ireland trip, but I don't know if, if it... Uh, 
you know, if it comes up often. Well, it's, it's certainly one of those things that I'm aware of from sort of reading a bit of history have been uh, a, a feature of life many, many years ago. One of the ways that you're taxed upon your wealth is on the size of your house and the size of your house me- measured by windows. And that does mean that it's possible to avoid tax by not completing your house and not putting the windows in. And right. glass and glazed windows were seen as a luxury. But I think that, for me, that dates to a time before the Aubrey Matron timeline. That dates back to the kind of Tudor era a little bit. But clearly, it's a thing for Sophie and the family here. Um, what's been your experience, Mike? Well, I, it was funny because I, I, I visited this one place in Ireland on the last trip called Muckrose House. And it was this beautiful, incredible state that you know, apparently they didn't live in very long and then was ultimately turned over kind of to the government to say, here, you know, you you, you take this. And and the story behind it was the window tax that, well, two ah. things. The, the guy who built it, built it for his wife who died while it was being constructed. And then he had made it so ornate with, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of windows uh, that the window tax was going to kill him. And uh, so he invited Queen Victoria on her tour of Ireland to come stay. And his goal was for, you know, for her to make him a knight, because if you were a knight, you didn't have to pay the tax. And uh, but apparently he was obnoxious. He might have even had a connection to America. (laughs) uh, But, you know, it, it was this kind of, you know business kind of guy did not uh, you know i have to go back and look because he really did not understand the way about it victoria hated him left early you know certainly wasn't giving him that and so he he folded the whole property and that was the first i knew of the window tax i did go back and look at it and you're right started way earlier but actually continued um it took on all kinds of variations. There have been all kinds of economics studies about it because it was the idea of the intended and unintended effects of taxation. Yeah. And it was it was also an idea that said, gosh, here's a really interesting way to tax so that you don't become too big of a burden on the poor, um, but are taxing more luxury things. But it had it's, it's just been a fascinating case study. And I think you know, like a similar tax existed in France from like 1728 all the way through 1926. Goodness. So, you know, we, we do get a long thing. But I thought just the fact that it's just this kind of a bit of a phrase in the end of one letter. And I thought, but it's just this another, you know, kind of a very different kind of Easter egg to unpack here about the problems. This And the fact that even Commodore Aubrey, you know, and, and dear Sophie, this is a bit of an issue. So well done. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. And as you say, another nice little Easter egg to dig behind. Yes. So let's catch up with where we were. William Reed had brought the ringle and had brought some letters from home. And Jack passes on some of the news. He says to Stephen that Sophie and the children are sending him their love. And Stephen says Bridget, reading from his letters, sends her love to Jack. And there's a long passage in Irish from Padine that he can't make out. We know from earlier that Bridget and Padine prefer or more naturally speak in Irish together, but Bridget doesn't know how to write it. So she writes kind of phonetically, like an English person trying to to, to write down the phonetic sound that she hears when somebody speaks Irish. And Stephen is wrestling with this, hoping that if he can say it aloud to himself, he might come to understand it. And Mike, it, it, it's interesting that we don't ever find out about what's going on with Padine here. Um, 
We don't get to find out how close he ever has come to being able to go back to the land that Stevens promised for him. We don't really find out what he was what he was bothered about when he picked up the pen here. No, we, we, we don't. So it's 3.30 a.m. And, you know, Jack and Stephen have been sitting here all night reading their letters. And the bells remind Jack that it's time to go back up on deck. He wants to take their latitude. He wants to talk to Reed since they're just about to kind of get to their first point of where they're headed here. Uh, Jack checks the logboard uh, and he takes the exact double-checked height of Mizar, a star for which he had a particular affection, the text says. He confirms their position with Huell, who's, who's also kind of taking a read. He calls the Ringle over and he asks Reed to go look into the harbor and then come back out about half a mile. He says, if there are more than two or three big Zebec rigged Corsairs there, send up three blue lights and stay there. <laughs> if there's fewer than three you know, of these big ships, send up red lights instead and rejoin the squadron immediately. So Jack's clearly, he's got his battle plan in mind. He's got his tactics here and he's checking things out. And I, and I thought kind of like the mention of Pavan, you know, Mizar, why, you know, this particular star, why this star here? And so we did some digging. Right. Um, Mizar or Mizar is a star in the Big Dipper, in the Great Bear, Ursa Major. And Actually, the brightest stars of Urgent Major itself form the pattern that everybody knows in the in the northern sky as the Big Dipper. It's visible most of the year round in the northern hemisphere. And Mizar is referenced in lots of different ancient cultures. It has Greek myths associated with it. It's present in the stories of Homer. It's talked about in the Bible. And lots of cultures have different names and stories and associations for it. It has a companion star. It's in effect a double star. So Mizar and Alcor, the fainter companion star, combined to make a really famous double. Interestingly, Mike, in what you might call Western and European culture, another name for Mizar and Alcor is the horse and rider, <laughs> which sounds like a Patrick O'Brien reference as well. Doesn't right, it? right. So if you look up, you look along the handle of the Big Dipper, you'll spot Mizar first. It's in the middle of the handle. And if you look really closely, or if you have a pair of binoculars or a telescope, you'll be able to split it. And it was famous as being the first telescopic binary, that's to say, a, a double star that you could resolve with a telescope. Uh, notably by Benedetto Castelli in 1617, who asked Galileo to observe it. Galileo, the, the, the more or less inventor of the telescope and inventor of planetary astronomy. Um, Galileo then made a record of the double star. And actually, as you get a better telescope, and as you look more closely, you see that Mizar is actually four stars itself. Alcor is itself a double, so what looks like two stars is actually six stars in one. And that's the, the, the never-ending delight of getting bigger and bigger telescopes and spending more and more time in the shed. <laughs> nice, nice. You know, it, it's interesting, you were mentioning you know, all the different cultures and different myths and everything else. In the U.S., in the Underground Railroad, this star was the one that you followed to head north when you were trying to escape slavery in the South. So the, uh -huh. you know, the line that was used was follow the drinking gourd to get to a better life. So the shape of this dipper as a drinking gourd. Oh, so I, you know, I love cool. it. Like you said, and, and what an amazing thing, you know, I, I watch, you know, your photography through the telescopes and everything. And this whole idea of, you know, it's, Oh, it's one, it's two. No, it's four, it's six. Oh my gosh. Amazing. <laughs> 
So at 8 bells, so now 4 a.m. here, the crew, having heard the captain earlier, doesn't go below. You know, they're relieved they can go below, but they go, no, no, we know we know Jack here. Yeah. And then Jack tells Summers, the relieving officer, you know what, let's let's have breakfast early at two bells. And and so clearly they're they're justified. They're going, yeah, it's not not worth having the watch go below. And at two bells in the morning, watch 5 a.m., three crimson lights appear. So clearly the ringle saying, the big ships are not in there. And Jack yeah. knows, okay, they're out after the merchantmen. We got we to gotta get the heck out of here. But he wants the cook to get the stove hot very quickly. You know, don't spare the slush. We want, <laughs> you know, everybody fed because pretty soon we're going to clear for action. And, you know, we know this is a, ve- you know, Jack always feels that way, right? It is. And in the cabin, Jack tells Stephen the news that he thinks we'll have the Indiaman under our lee soon, um, un- under the Sugarloaf, this mountainous landmark where he thinks the Corsairs are planning to cut off the merchantmen heading for home. And since the fires are lit, not only is that good news for the crew to get fed, uh, we can have a little bit of porridge before the action. And more importantly, Jack and Stephen can profit from this and have a pot of coffee before clearing for action. And, and I love that this is the kind of thing where Stephen in happier times would have said, yeah, yeah, with all my heart and bring a second pot along. He says, it is our obvious duty with a pale smile. Mm. And it, it's a nice little moment here of Stephen using the, the, the mind-altering substance that's appropriate for the moment here. In previous times, he might have turned to laudanum and coca leaves, but this time he's completely forsworn them He's keeping his spirits up with tobacco and nothing else except perhaps a little wine. And the text says he had always despised the stylite, which is a, uh, a word that means an, an ascetic, uh, a hermit type person living on top of a pillar, which is a bit of an echo from Treason's Harbor. He had always despised the stylite or even the hair shirt kind of asceticism. And he was still drinking the last of the pot with something not far from relish. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He's enjoying the caffeine after all. He was still doing this 10 minutes after Jack had left him and they'd beat to quarters. And Mike, is this a temporary change in Stephen's behavior or is this something irreversible, I wonder? Has he decided to forswear all of the stronger substances and is he now just going to be a coffee and tobacco man? You really do wonder, is this, you know, you know, no dulling the pain with addiction? Is he wiser, more mature? Is he just doesn't care anymore yeah. or you know you know jack had said you know basically his only reason for living is defeating napoleon so maybe it's look i got to keep a clear mind and and get this done but i i love that he's not all in on his asceticism i love that he's staying close to music and i love just this little hint that you know he's enjoying the coffee you know yeah. even if it is with a pale smile so i i take that as a good sign well Stephen joins Paul and Harris, you know, the and, and the ship's butcher in the Orlop. And yeah. they have everything ready. When Stephen walks in, it's all ready to go. Dr. Jacobs is a little bit late. Uh, and he's being led by a ship's boy, he says, because he'd gotten lost. And, and Jacob says, oh, sir, I do beg you to forgive me. I am no great seaman, as you know. And this great, dark, wandering labyrinth confounded me. Darkness visible. And, huh. and I couldn't, boy, I kind of like, what? I'm listening to Patrick talking, darkness visible. I'm going, whoa, wait a minute. We know that. 
phrase from somewhere here, right? So, so when we dig into it, Mike, what do we find? Well, it's interesting. This darkness visible comes from John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. We heard that phrase in the Commodore when those two Syrian merchants were watching Jack's squadron sail into Freetown, which we have an echo back to Governor Woods here, Uh, you know, just before in that book, the shock and awe demonstration. But at that time when they talked about it, they were also talking about Satan in clear references. So we didn't focus as much on darkness visible. We were focused on some other aspects of, of Milton's poem. But this darkness visible comes from this part of that text. It says, at once as far as angels can, the, the view of this angel, what does the angel see? It's, he views the dismal situation, waste and wild, a dungeon horrible, on all sides round as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible served only to discover sights of woe. So this is this is the angel, Lucifer, you know, who is you know thrown out of heaven, falls into hell, if you will. You know, this is the you know, so Satan as we call him now. And the scene is describing what, you know, this was an angel. This was like, you know, one of the top guys right below there in heaven. This is what he sees when he first arrives in hell. And this darkness visible while, you know, kind of coming from the furnace, there's no light. But this darkness visible lights up, you know, these sights of woe. And I'm like, oh, crap. This this doesn't bode well here. I, I um, you know, I, I'm a little bit concerned about this. I, I do want to call out that there's a, a website where I pulled this out of darknessvisible.christ.cam.ac.uk. And it's a website written by members of Christ College Cambridge, where Milton studied. Right. And it was written by students there on the 400th anniversary of, of celebrating, you know, this epic poem. And they're writing this for people who are in their first, second, you know, their initial readings of Paradise Lost instead of these, you know, deep, deep, deep scholarly things. It's a really, you know, great site. Really appreciated that. And a little bit of, you know, tightness wrapping around my heart going, oh, gosh, this doesn't seem like a simple throwaway phrase on the part of Dr. Jacobs. It really doesn't. And um, we've, we've had darkness and we've had the threat of the pirates. And now we've got a little bit of an echo of violence to come, I think, here in this next part, because Stephen and Jacob are getting ready to fulfill their duties as surgeons. And Stephen suggests that they put a true razor's edge on their instruments. And there's a degree of silent competition between Stephen and Jacob, both are really proud of their skills as sharpeners of a surgical edge. And they sharpen away, and each of them is kind of showing off with how they can shave the hair off their forearms perfectly without taking away any, any of the skin. And Stephen falters as he tries to sharpen his largest catling. And we learn that a catling is a heavy, double-edged, sharp-pointed amputating knife. And Harris, who is kind of watching on here, can't bear to see any more of Stephen's repeated attempts, takes it, sharpens it to perfection, asks Stephen's pardon, and returns it to him. And Stephen gives it straight back. Well, damn you, Harris, said Stephen having tried the superlative edge. If I ever have to operate upon you, I shall do so with an instrument of your own preparing and... 
just as Stephen is about to go into this kind of bantering line of uh, shade that he's throwing on Harris for being a better knife sharpener, he's cut off by the sound of guns. And Mike, it sounds like the Zebex and the Sally Rovers might be close at hand. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Ian. You know, so Stephen can hear this down below, but Jack's on deck and he can see what's happening. And he, you know, he's telling us that, you know, the squadron is quickly coming around the point and they see the East Indiaman convoy under sail, escorted by one 16-gun brig sloop formed into a line facing off against 20 or so Zebex and galleys. Mm-hmm. And around the Zebex and galleys, there are all these small craft loaded with moors waiting to board any disabled merchantmen. And and Jack's pleased that that you know the the merchantmen with their little protection are, are doing pretty well against the Zebex, but they're really not having any luck against the galleys. The galleys race down under sail and then turn and come back up with their oars from the leeward, raking the hindmost ships, one of which is on fire. It looks like they've shot through, you know, kind of hit the powder room here. And and even though the galleys just have very small guns, they're right up close where the ships can and can hit them. So they can really do some damage here. Well, you know, it's still nighttime and the night is lit up by this ship on fire and also very clear sky and moonlight. And so Jack signals to the squadron, you know, everybody take independent action. You know, you guys go after the best targets here. And he launches the surprise against the commanding Zebek. Now, you know, he goes in, and this is this is classic Jack too. He's taking fire from the Zebek, which is firing at him. It's all right. He's going in, he's setting himself up, and and he takes some hits, but then the surprise turns and its rippling broadside inflicts this shocking damage on the Zebek. After the smoke's clear, they see. Her ports are all beat in, her rudder shot away, you know, and then he fires a slower, more deliberate broadside and he shatters the Zebek entirely. The crew is is throwing anything that floats overboard because they know, you know, their ship is sinking momentarily here. Right. Now, other squadron ships are attacking the galleys and the Corsairs. Now, the outgunned Zebeks and galleys kind of see what they're up against now and, and they, you know, they all turn, and the ones that can still sail are getting the heck out of Dodge. Yeah. Uh, Jack, you know, realized these are worthless prizes. They wouldn't mean anything to take them. And he tells everybody, you know, we've got more important things to do. Let's go get that ship that's on fire and help it and, and you know, see to the merchantmen and everybody. So, wow, a quick action, but boy, an intense one and even perhaps more intense than we've seen here, as we'll learn in a little bit. It's, it's exciting, isn't it? Really intense, smart move to have it at night, partly because we've got this theme of darkness all the way through the chapter. Yes. And also because it's really visually kind of arresting. You've got this picture in your head. Um, lots of us have seen pictures of the Battle of the Nile, which was partly at night with the ship, French ship exploding. The Jack signaling for independent action is a very sort of Nelson touch that he's going for here. So it's really, really exciting. And as, as we might talk about later on, it's more exciting than we normally get in the first couple of chapters of a Patrick O'Brien book. Right. They managed to get the fire out and the convoy's combined strength of bosuns and carpenters get started re-rigging and repairing the ship. The Commodore of the Indiamen comes along with his captains to wait upon Jack and express their thanks and to hear about the squadron's losses. And for what was a fairly intense night action and fairly full-blooded, Jack is 
able to report that there were only two deaths and about 20 people in the sick bay on the surprise. And he believes that the rest of the squadron has suffered similarly low losses. And the merchantmen say, well, whatever you've lost is nothing compared to the attacker's huge loss of life from all the damage that you inflicted on the Zebek. And noted that the Pomone as well had cut into or destroyed enough galleys to man a heavy frigate with their dead. So he's talking about some hundreds of casualties on the side of the Corsairs here. So as they're all kind of coming down from the intensity of the action, Killick does what Killick has to do. Killick brings coffee and food. And once again, the conversation among the captains turns to their gratitude that they've been spared really heavy casualties. And Jack says, well, losses were low, but on the other hand, we had no men to spare to begin with. We're still really short of hands, especially the Pomone, whose impressment activities had kind of triggered our knowledge about all of this. He says that her boats, the Pomone's boats, the ones who saved the merchantmen, were out there to get some right seamen. And this is now a chance to turn to the Commodore of the East India uh, convoy here and uh, put the screws on gently here. Given he says that none of their crews would have known that war had broken out, he's pretty sure, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, that maybe maybe as many as 40 or 60 or so of the merchant crew would like to enter the Royal Navy voluntarily and take the bounty. And uh, Jack goes on to give more specifics. He points it with a, with a heavy hint that surprise needs, as well as just general hands, needs a steady, reliable master's mate and two or three upper yard hands. And all of the captains kind of look at each other, not knowing what to make of this, and they look at their Commodore, and they realize that Jack is being very smart about this. He's got the whip hand here. He could press men if he chooses. He could choose to play it, uh, the hard cove, but he's giving them the chance to do this with at least some semblance of volunteerism and to keep some good feeling here. Great bit of leadership by Aubrey, and they all spot instantly, without it having to be laid out for them, that they owe him a lot for saving the convoy. The Commodore says, we're going to be fine with this. Nobody in the squadron will give the slightest difficulty. They'll all pass the word for volunteers and the Commodore will guarantee their pay for the time they spent on the merchantman. And to add to this, he's going to send Jack four of his own good young upper yard men. However, he has to report the convoy has got no master's mate, so he can't fill that particular gap. But he can offer Jack an experienced well-qualified gentlemanly purser as a volunteer for a few months until matters are settled at home. And he says his wife had had some children while he was away on his three-year voyage. He doesn't want to return home until the lawyers have dealt with the situation. So Jack, Jack Aubrey's not been the only one uncertain about what's been going on at home in the marital home here. Oh, yes, I've been away for a while. and My wife's had some kids, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah, ouch, ouch. Yeah, not just one, right? <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting because Jack had intended to act as his own purser you know, during the journey to Chile, and he's happy to have the help now that he's got a whole squadron to kind of uh, see to as well as be purser and the mission's much more complex than Chile. Um, that's great help. And he says that he, on his part, after the Commodore of the Merchantman has been so, you know, so generous, he will, Jack will leave the Dover behind in case the bandits come out again and to escort them against privateers and French men of war all the way into the channel. And the captains are most grateful. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, Jack's got to divide his squadron into three pieces. 
he doesn't have a lot to let go of, but here he is. Now, that is one of his missions is to protect convoys. But I'm also thinking, ah, we know about how he feels about the Dover and his captain and, and uh-huh. what a bad apple that might be. What a great idea. You, you take behind. these guys to England. We'll carry on here. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm really glad for Jack. I mean, a lot of this chapter is about Stephen. A lot of the emotional context is about Stephen. But Jack can just get on and do his Jack Aubrey thing. He's good with merchant commodores. He's good with, you know, finding diplomatic ways to get resources from people. He's good with dividing up the tasks amongst his command so that he gets the least aggravation from the captains who are the weakest. So I'm, I'm enjoying that part of the story here. Now, Everybody buries their dead and gets on with their repairs, and the convoy and the squadron part on the best of terms. And not only has this been positive to that extent, but Stephen has the chance to reflect on how appreciative he can be of Paul Skeeping and Mrs. Cheel, because they've been doing a great job. They've been dressing the many wounded and doing excellent work. That, in turn, has freed Stephen up to attend Jack's invitation to dine with some of the captains in the squadron and. A little bit of socializing here, I think, is probably going to start to help Stephen out. We were beginning of chapter one. He wasn't really fit company for everybody. But now he's being drawn back into the family of the uh, of the Navy here. He sits at this one particular dinner next to Captain Pomfret of the Pomone. Pomfret is obviously unwell and low in his spirits. And after dinner, Pomfret quietly asks whether Stephen will consult with him. And, and Mike, I start to have flashbacks like you to the Mauritius command and ca- captains asking for help for unnamed disorders starts to make me twitch a little bit here but Wait. Stephen has a bit of a liking for Pomfret even though he's in a tough situation and he also knows the limits of the surgeon who's aboard the Pomone and says even so he can only consult um, if Mr. Glover the surgeon agrees and Mike this is something that Stephen's insisted upon in recent memory and many many times before right right well, Pomfret takes it well, but he says, you know, he's sure Mr. Glover is a clever doctor, but he is hardly on speaking terms with him. And that this, he says, is more a personal, confidential matter than perhaps a physical medical matter. Mm-hmm. And Stephen invites him to take a walk on deck. And Pomfret sees this, you know, if you'll give me some more specifics, you know, I might be able to understand how I can properly be of use. As you say, I, you know, I can't violate my medical ethics, but you know, tell me what's going on here. And the captain says that under his orders, the Pomone destroyed one galley and rowed down two others, cutting them in pieces so that they sank in minutes and that he has not been able to sleep since then. He keeps seeing the faces of scores of Christian slaves chained to their oars, looking up at him for mercy. Mm. And he wonders if perhaps he's mistaken his profession. You know, am I in the wrong job here? And I think, wow. So here we had, we had that action. It was very intense, but it was quick. And now we're getting that more up close personal view of looking down, knowing, you know, in, in Pomfrey's mind, these are Christians, you know, that, that might be, you know, uh, you know, an enemy holding the whip and steering the ship, but these are not the enemy. And, you know, I'm just doing them all in, in a matter of minutes. Ah, And it's a moment of grave self-doubt. We don't have very much self-doubt from many of the naval officers that we get to know, but here's an important one. And to the question, have I mistaken my profession? Stephen has an answer straight away. Arguably the very helpful straight professional answer of a truly naval surgeon who says, I don't think you have. 
he feels sympathy for Pomfret's distress and he can't necessarily universally justify war even against the dictator Bonaparte but Stephen feels that it still is a war that must be fought and if it has to be fought it's better to be fought with whatever humanity war does allow and to be fought by officers like Pomfret who will see the violence for what it is and see the consequences and have their doubts rather than of course to be fought by somebody who for whom life is cheap and for whom you know bloodlust can take hold Stephen reaches out then to Pomfret with some help. He says, I shall play the doctor so far as to send you a box of pills that will give you two nights heavy sleep. If, having slept, you wish to hear my reasons, I hope I shall have them fairly well arranged. And after that, you must be your own physician. End of chapter two. So, Mike, it, it, I think O'Brien's treading a fairly fine line in this chapter. Now, on the one hand, he wants to take us into the world that Stephen is living in a little. On the other hand, it's a world that Patrick O'Brien himself is living in, this world of bereavement and melancholy, and it's got to be painful. But I really admire how he's made it real for us and made it real for the characters without getting maudlin and without also having to expose himself to lots and lots of emotional turmoil. It's, it's a very uh, British mid-20th century stiff upper lip way of talking about the emotional mm. life of Stephen Maturin right now. Right, right. That's a great point. You know, it's it's funny. I, I, I kind of ended this chapter thinking about what had happened and trying to kind of, you know, position it and make sense of it. And, and I was reminded, you know, on the audiobook episode, Steve Morris paraphrased the quote, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Yeah. And, and describing that this, you know, this is how O'Brien writes. You're, you're kind of going all along. And, and you know, as he says, you know, you don't end up going straight to South America. Something completely different happens. Yeah. And and when we talked to Simon Vance, he kind of alluded to the same thing when, you know, he's talking about, you know, we asked him about narrating 21 and would it have helped him know how the story ends? And he was saying, you know, no. I know these characters and, and this is, you know, this is O'Brien telling us, you don't have to know where it ends to know them. And, and to me, chapters one and two have kind of typified this in very big and small ways. This idea that, you know, we're at home, we're at home with these characters. We're just moving on another day in their lives. And we don't, you know, life is what happens when you're making other plans, because yeah. this has certainly been full of that. You know, the deaths that were casually reported in chapter one, big example. Oh, my gosh. You know, we're making other plans. Look at what happens. And then Jack, the way he's working on determining how to best divide the squadron. And then all of a sudden, the whole squadron's called into action. You know, we've got these changes happening here. It, it does that. And, and I was kind of, you know, it's funny because when I first finished this, I was thinking, oh, oh, this is like the Yellow Admiral's rhythm. You know, we have a big chapter like chapter one, then we're going to have a small chapter. And I realized this this really wasn't a small chapter at all no. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So even though O'Brien doesn't give it much of an airtime, this battle off the coast of Morocco, you know, I feel like some really important things have happened. And O'Brien's twisting in new threads. He's pulling on others, setting up a lot of things, you know, maybe in subtle ways. I don't know. Well, it's, it's funny to speculate upon, first of all, what are his intentions from the story point of view? Because he's yes. he was working quite hard at the end of the Yellow Admiral to set us up for a particular arc of story to do with the 100 days. 
but also from a personal point of view, writing about his experience and to what extent is all of this kind of a carefully deliberate and neatly woven up thing. And to what extent is it actually a little bit ad hoc because he's responding to mm. his, the loss of his wife. I have an idea, but my idea comes with the caveat that maybe this is way too simplistic. And if O'Brien is listening, um, he's probably rolling his eyes and tutting right now. <laughs> um, but I was looking at the fact that we have a, a ship on ship action, you know, a, an action at night with casualties and gunfire and, you know, blood and stuff. And we don't normally get the blood and thunder in Patrick O'Brien books, at, at least in this latter part of the canon. We don't get it until later. So it was quite unusual for us to have this kind of intense action this early in the story. So that makes me think, and here's where I think O'Brien will roll his eyes, that O'Brien's guessing that writing about some action might give him a bit of catharsis, or at least allow him to play with the idea that the violence is a way of working through things that you're dealing with. Nice. And maybe then the reflection of Pomfret agonizing over his his witnessing of the, the death of the Christian slaves aboard the galleys, maybe that's O'Brien reflecting that actually catharsis is all very well, but the violence itself isn't going to do away with your low spirits. If you're going to witness and take part in violence, it's going to stay with you and it doesn't just kind of wash everything else away. It, if anything, it leaves you worse, especially if, if you're a Pomfret type leader rather than perhaps i dare say an aubrey type leader nice nice yeah so it's it, 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 it's really interesting to reflect on that it, it makes me wonder as well mike how o'brien's going to handle the uh the personal reflection and the story arc as we go into the, the the following chapters yeah very much so and and i'm i'm kind of um you know, like you, Ian, I'm sort of looking back over here and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, we got this excellent overview of Wellington's situation on the continent. We've, we've gotten a lot of history of the 100 days set up here. We've had this context of women serving routinely aboard Royal Navy ships at the yeah. time. And, and a little bit of this role reversal of, you know, Stephen's opinion of women on ships and Jack's opinion of women on ships. And, you know, I'm thinking, one of the things that seems to be happening is we're seeing their differences and similarities uh, that they're not role reversal, but this is we're seeing how they think and feel with more depth and nuance rather yeah. than reversal. Yeah. We've got now three missions for the squadron, not just the original one. Like we had, uh, you know, we have got, as you say, this early action in the book, one, you know, big enough for Jack to now learn a lot more about his crews and ships and officers because now he's seen them. You know, how did they do? What did they do here? And we have some cryptic, perhaps ominous foreshadowing, you know, bad omens, darkness visible. And now, as you say, we've raised this question about, you know, is war just? What kind of officers should fight them? I mean, O'Brien's packed, a, you know, this kind of what I thought was at first read, maybe just a little bit of a setting up short pause chapter, a really, really full chapter from his own dealing with what he's, you know, as, as all these things we've talked about here. Yeah. So it's amazing yeah. here. I, I like this idea of what, what kind of person sh should fight war. You know, if you're going to have the, all of the citizens of a country or all the professional sailors in a country, um, which ones should you make leaders and he's, he's telling us, sorry, I think he's showing us something here with the response of Pomfret. What do you think? Well, Ian, this, this one hit me super, super personally. You know, I had uh, the situation with Captain Pomfrey reminded me of a conversation I had with a very good friend who, who graduated before me 
And, and we're back probably in 1969, 1970, you know, right in that time. Yeah. And, and this guy, well, let me set the context here. So f- for, for those of you who don't know U.S. history, we just been through Martin Luther King's assassination, the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, when, you know, we had across the political spectrum candidates, we had police roll through parks where hippies, if yeah. you will, were, you know, they're supporting uh, G. McCarthy. Um, the National Guard had killed four students at Kent State in a protest in Viet- the Vietnam Wars going on. Uh, there'd been this incursion in Cambodia. One of my cousins was sucked up in that. Uh, we had a draft, which for the first time as I was graduating, was not going to have a college deferment. Yeah. So, you know, it was like, doesn't matter how you feel about this, you know, it's just like a steamroller. Nixon's vice president was the former governor of Maryland, where I had grown up. And it was no secret to us there that he was a crook. And his comment about another campus protest, you know, he suggested that they, and these are his words, locked the gates and called the Air Force. Wow. So there are record-setting protests against the war. I mean, the, the nation was, you know, we think about what's going on nowadays in the polarization. This was also a time of great divide. And my friend was brilliant and smart and talented and accomplished. He had the brains and money to go to school anywhere he wanted. He's graduating and I had just heard the announcement that he was going to college at West Point. So he wow. was going to become a, you know, he was on his way to being a top army officer in the middle of this situation. I was dumbfounded. I was like, I felt devastated, confused, betrayed. I went to see him and his explanation was very simple. He'd always wanted to serve his country. And he said, you know, who would I rather have behind the Pentagon gates as I marched up with a bunch of protesters, him or someone else? And I thought, yeah, you know, if they call the Air Force, this is the guy I want in command that yeah, day. Yeah. And, and I've always been grateful for his service. And, you know, as Stephen said, you know, and since it has to be fought, it is better that it should be fought at least on one side with what humanity war does allow and by officers of your kind. I said something like that to Benny, but I wish I'd had Stephen's words. (laughs) Well, Stephen's words and the insight of Stephen, which comes along with the insight of Patrick O'Brien is it's really, really, really great stuff. Um, It will be really fascinating, especially as we get into the later chapters to learn more about what's going on in Stephen's mind. Are we going to stay at this really deep level of insight and reflection about war? Because if you want to, um, 1814 and 1815, they've got plenty of war to share around. Right. Um, perhaps there's more than just the, the the writing and the reflecting on sad music to be done with Stephen's grief. And perhaps that's a good thing for us. And perhaps that's a good thing for the author as well as he's dealing with his own grief. Right. So, Mike... Ad- Really, really great stuff. You, you can't read this chapter, I think, and say to yourself, uh, O'Brien's losing it. I think you read this chapter and think, this is still a person with a lot to say and with a huge amount of writerly skill in saying it to us. So all kinds of possibilities here. I, I can't wait to hear what's coming next in chapter three. But what do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. Thank you.
Exercise the great guns. I might. Uh, this is. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Sam. Uh, <laughs> there, no that, maybe a classic outtake there. <laughs> oh, yeah.